This morning, we're thinking about the wounds to Jesus's hands. Maybe the wounds we most immediately think about when we think about the cross. We've sung hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. And if you know that song, you'll know that it always catches you, that line, stops you short. To help us think about the wounds to Jesus's hands, we're going to hear about his arrest and betrayal. It's dark, it's late, the disciples are petrified, the guards are on edge, swords are drawn. So what does our wonderful Jesus do next? While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. If Jesus' hands could do the talking, what would they say? There are some general things we can guess. Jesus was brought up in first century Nazareth. It was a small village with subsistence farming and simple houses. He would have eaten olives and bean and lentil stew and fish, fruit, cheese and occasionally meat. His house would, had, would have had a mud floor, walls of rough local stone, a thatched roof. Before he took to preaching, Jesus made his living as a carpenter, so his hands were rough and gnarled and scarred, probably. We do know that Jesus' hands were integral to his ministry. They certainly did the talking when it came to how he approached other people. You might say his was a hands-on ministry. A leper comes towards Jesus and his disciples. Law and tradition says, throw a stone at him. Jesus reached out his hand to touch the man. This year of all years, we suddenly appreciate what that meant. Reaching out to touch a stranger with what was thought to be a rampantly infectious disease. A blind man is brought to Jesus the healer. Jesus leads him outside the village, spits on the man's eyes, touches them gently with his hands twice, and the man is healed. I guess Jesus didn't need to touch him, but asked a blind man, asked a leper, that made a massive difference. Little children are brought to Jesus to be blessed. The disciples berate the parents and say that big Jesus has more important things to do than bless little children. Ah, ah, says Jesus, bring the little children to me. 
they are radiant and compelling images of accepting the kingdom of heaven. Jesus placed his hands on them and blessed them. A huge crowd of people has followed Jesus out into the wilderness to hear him preach. Now they're hungry and far from home. Jesus takes loaves and fish in his hands, blesses the food, breaks it, places them in his friends' hands so they can share it with the crowds. Jesus loves to share. His disciples gather in an upper room in the confusion of Holy Week. Jesus takes bread in his hands, breaks it, shares it. Jesus takes a cup in his hands, blesses it, shares it around the table. He loves to share this Jesus, this hands-on preacher and kingdom bringer. Which brings us to the arrest of Jesus that we heard described in our Bible reading. We're normally transfixed by Judas's kiss and what lies behind the betrayal of Jesus by someone who'd seen him up close. But notice what happens. The arresting soldiers are determined to take Jesus by force, whereas the disciples are understandably fearful and confused. Peter whips out his sword and cuts the ear off one of the high priest's servants. Foolhardy, brazen, loyal perhaps, but not what Jesus wants. Jesus will have none of this violence. His last act before his arrest is to reach out and touch and heal the high priest's servant. Now there's three and a half sermons just in that, but let's pause and remember that when unjustified violence erupts around him, Jesus' instinct is still to heal and to make whole. Let's follow Jesus' last hours by focusing on his hands. His hands were bound from the moment of his arrest. Still, even 2,000 years later, bound hands are the signs of a criminal. The second we see someone in handcuffs, our presumption is that they've been arrested and that there's a strong chance that they've done something wrong. When our hands are bound, we are helpless and vulnerable. You, you can't defend yourself against others. And Jesus would have had plenty of people in the hours to come, aiming punches and slaps at his head and at his body. This willing defenselessness of Jesus is a beautiful and a poignant thing. It's been captured by many great artists, among them Francisco de Zurbaran. This is the picture, the bound lamb, dating from the late 1630s. The lamb is bound by its front and back legs, brightly lit, helpless, vulnerable. It's clear both that this is in preparation for the lamb to be slaughtered and that the lamb is not struggling or fighting, but willingly yielding its life. Jesus' hands were almost certainly bound through his trials, whipping and mockery. The Romans usually either lashed or nailed convicted criminals to the crossbeam when they were crucified. This was part of the torture and humiliation of the cross. You, you couldn't wriggle free. It's clear from the Gospel accounts that Jesus was indeed 
nailed to the cross, either directly through his hands, as often betrayed in art, or through his wrists. The Gospel writers are not specific about this, as both, both Hebrew and Greek has a word for hand that is less precise than ours, so you, you just can't quite tell. We do know that in 1968, the remains of a first century Jew called Jehohanan were discovered. He'd been crucified, and in fact, rather morbidly, the nail that had pinned his ankle to the cross was still embedded in the bone of the, of the, of the heel. But there were also marks on his two wrist bones, the radius and the ulna, suggesting that the nail had been hammered through those wrist bones. Some argue that this was a more certain way of making sure that people couldn't break free from the cross. We do know that Jesus retained his wounds after his resurrection. As the great Easter hymn says, these wounds yet visible above, in beauty glorified. It doesn't actually matter whether the nails went through Jesus's palms or Jesus's wrists. What should hold our attention today is that being nailed to the cross meant that Jesus was locked in a cruel parody of the blessing and healing and welcome that summed up who he was and what he stood for. He was pinned in a posture that was positively personal to him. He'd welcomed and blessed and embraced and healed all his life and now he welcomed and blessed and embraced and healed in his death. Two verses from John's Gospel help us catch the deeper truth and beauty of Jesus's outstretched arms of love on the cross. John 12:32, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And when we first hear those words in John's Gospel, our presumption is that this is a vision of the future glory of Jesus. We've seen all these miracles, these signs that he's done, how they've lit up his identity and purpose. Surely, we think, this is all leading to something more splendid, more marvellous, more miraculous, something that will be inescapably riveting, that will compel people to acknowledge their Saviour. So when we get to the figure of Jesus on the cross, we understandably mutter, well, it's not that, but then we stop. Yes, it is that. This is what Jesus meant. His hands and feet may have been nailed to the cross, but his embrace and welcome is for the very sinners whose sin he bears. The second verse comes a little earlier in John, just before at the more famous John 3.16. In John 3.14 we read, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that, who, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Moses had lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness as something for all the people to look to for healing and salvation. Jesus foresaw that he would be lifted up too. But we would never have guessed that it was looking to this broken man on a cross that would become the bridge to eternal life. On the day, we would have just seen another supposed criminal 
who'd fallen foul of the might of Imperial Rome. But the closer you look, the more awe-inspiring and beautiful the scene. His lifting up was in humiliation and terror and tears, a spectacle, a laughingstock, pilloried and spat upon. But still he held open those arms of love, those hands of blessing, the offer of healing, the challenge of reconciliation. Oh, what a beautiful saviour. Oh, what a privilege to be his. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your outstretched arms of love upon the cross for me. Thank you that you welcomed and blessed and healed right until the terror of your death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that it wasn't the nails, but love that kept you on the cross. Lord Jesus, I look at my own hands and I wonder what they say about me. Forgive me for the times my hands hurt others with what I write, what I pass on, what I do to others, what I don't do for others. Lord Jesus, take these hands and let them move at the impulse of your love and prosper the work of our hands, O Lord. Yes, prosper the work of our hands. Amen.